the divergent approaches of EU member states in their privacy protocols for coronavirus contact tracing apps are about to be laid bare as nations adopt different technologies with different standards, despite the EU attempting to harmonise guidance on the use of such apps. This week, Euractiv digs deeper into the controversy surrounding the pan-European privacy-preserving proximity tracing project and surveys the other news in the world of EU tech policy and politics. My name is Samuel Stolton and you're listening to Euractiv's Digital Brief podcast. So over the last week, a vicious split has opened up within the researchers of the PET-PT project, which was originally hailed a few weeks ago as a potential solution to building a singular architecture for an EU contact tracing app as a means to contain the spread of the coronavirus. Last week, PET-PT came under fire for a lack of transparency in their software operations after reports emerged that the consortium erased text on their website which had highlighted its commitment to using a decentralised protocol uh, in their technology. Since then, uh, a number of the leaders of the consortium, as well as the researchers more broadly involved, have decided to withdraw from the project and establish their own initiative based on a decentralised protocol, uh, which they believe provides uh, greater security for the uh, storage of data. And earlier this week, I caught up with one such member of the new decentralised outfit, Michael Veal, lecturer in digital rights and regulation at UCL. Um, Here's what he had to say about the backstory of the PET-PT and the new decentralised split, uh, why it happened, what went wrong, and perhaps what the future could be for the use of contact tracing apps in Europe and whether or not we're going in a centralised or decentralised direction with regards to the use of such applications. Here's what he had to say. Effectively, what PetPT promised to be was a umbrella forum for, for standardisation, for comparing shared challenges across different research groups who are working on contact tracing through Bluetooth systems. And uh, that was really necessary because, of course, everyone's interested in making these systems interoperable and as secure and as private as they are possible to be. Um, And and it was in that uh, vein uh, that that DP3T institutions, developers of this um, decentralized privacy preserving approach, were part of the PET-PT initiative. Um, Of course, because we're working a lot in the open, so we wanted to make sure we were coordinating and collaborating. What initially looked like a forum for coordination turned out to actually be something that, that appeared to be pushing a, a narrower set of interests, which to this date we still can't really understand and rationalise fully. The, uh, the PET-PT consortium was not doing what it promised and sharing the, the protocols, the code, the thinking, particularly of the uh, German research team. It was not presenting the full array of technical and social options to member states that it was approaching. In fact, we found that as an umbrella organization, it appeared to be becoming a front for pushing only the approach from industrialist Hans Christian Bose 
and um, different Fraunhofer institutes that had been uh, working closely with um, with uh, high members in German politics. The this was concerning because we began to find that the uh, the regulators, such as the German Data Protection Authority, were not being given the data protection documents about uh, our approach that we had been making. Uh, and in fact, they appeared to have uh, the scientific alternatives to a highly centralized database uh, misrepresented in meetings with them. And it was in that context, um, and also in the context of, of us being very uncomfortable working with any level of intransparency in this crisis, that as soon as our documents were finalized, we immediately put them um, uh, open access on our website, our GitHub website, which is a collaborative tool for, um, for people to work on around the world. You no, no permissions required. And it's this, uh, it, so we put these on um, uh, the website on the 3rd of April. Um, we got great feedback. Uh, we found that cryptographers and privacy engineers uh, generally really liked the structure of our system and found it to be strong. We found increasingly that other research groups around the world, such as MIT and Stanford and an array of, of startups working in privacy technologies, also had come to similar approaches uh, by this time. So we started to see that we were not the only ones thinking that this decentralized approach uh, was was uh, was effectively the much more proportionate and privacy-preserving way to do contact tracing. Um, we weren't the only ones. Uh, I'll, I'll explain the difference between the two in a bit, so don't, so don't worry about that. Uh, the, uh, the, other, the other part we found then was that after we had published, um, about a week afterwards, Apple and Google also proposed a very similar structure of idea from their privacy engineers. Um, and, and so we don't see this as, a, as actually a, a, a capture or a steer of the idea space. In fact, their idea was effectively echoing the notion that this is the way to do it without centralizing data and with remaining with keeping the trust of uh, individuals using it. So this was kind of all coming together as a big scientific consensus around the world to this approach. And uh, yet we were finding that this was still uh, being misrepresented to, um, to many parts of, of particularly the German government, um, uh, also to the European Commission. Um, the, not the European Parliament, though. The European Parliament, in its recent resolution in paragraph 52, clearly voted for, for decentralization, both of computation and of storage, and actually demanded it. Um, uh, and, and indeed, that was uh, so unanimous, there were no amendments even proposed to that particular paragraph. Um, so this was a, uh, a strong vouch for this system. The European Data Protection Board uh, also uh, has indicated its favours favour for decentralised approaches. Um, uh, the United Kingdom's Information Commissioner's Office has also done the same. So this is a... Um, uh, uh, this this is the kind of general background here, um, and we were working still uh, within an umbrella, or always with an umbrella of PetPT, because we still found it important for coordination. And, and frankly, we were still in a situation of disbelief that what looked like a, a forum for just dis academic discussion initially could really be 
so irrational and and full of vested interest. Mm-hmm. This was very bizarre. So we were working with them, but it increasingly became clear that they were not willing to work with with any other uh, viewpoints or the viewpoints of the scientific community. And it was at that point, uh, based on this strange irrationality, the uh, the the huge intransparency. Um, and the reputational risk of being attached to that kind of a vehicle um, that effectively uh, the pan-European part of PET-BT, which is what it stands for there, um, became only German. Uh, All of the other member organisations, more or less, that that made this a scientific powerhouse, left the uh, consortiums. That was ETH Zurich, KU Leuven, uh, EPFL in Lausanne, CISPA, the, 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 the Cybersecurity Institute in Germany's biggest scientific association, uh, ISI Foundation, the Research Institute in Italy, um, all one by one publicly announced they were leaving. Mm-hmm. So what do you think the ultimate objective is behind PET-PT, um, bearing in mind its perceived origins um, out of the German industrial machine? Uh, what's its ultimate goal here, Michael? It's hard to say. As we say, we think this is this is quite irrational. So we still are unclear about what the exact motives are behind this. But there's one thing that is quite clear, that um, many uh, private sector actors don't really like decentralized systems because they quite like the public contracts that come from managing unnecessarily complex centralized databases and the public contracts that can come from creating follow-up bids for their reuse in settings that, are, that look very different from their original purpose. The centralized approach differs from a decentralized approach uh, in several important ways. In a decentralized approach, identifiable personal data does not leave an individual's device. Um, we effectively do have a server, but it's not a centralized server because all it is, it's a pipe. It's a pipe that actually can learn nothing about you, not even pseudonymous data, not even a so-called anonymous social network, which is impossible. It really learns nothing about you. How this works is that when you um, when you get infected, uh, you take your phone to the test clinic. Your phone had before that been both emitting random numbers every 15 minutes or so to the world um, in the environment from your phone uh, using Bluetooth. And it had been listening to other people's random numbers and how close they were. And it was just making a log of these. So it said, what have I, you know, what have I sent out from my phone? And what have I also heard from the world? And it keeps that data totally on your phone, right? Now, when you go and get infected and you go and get that confirmed at a test clinic, you are allowed at that point to upload your, what you have sent out from your own phone. Bear in mind, these still look like shuffling random numbers. These uh, are not persistent identifiers that can be used to link you or to track you. Um, these were sent out once in your immediate vicinity and then disappear into the ether. Okay, so so they're not something that can be used to profile you. Uh, there's no location data and so on. To the server, these just look like random numbers, a whole list of them. And it, all it does is it just moves them and gives them to everybody's phone in the country later on that day. So everyone's phone downloads these numbers. And on the privacy of your own device, the phone then compares the numbers that it has seen and recorded from the world with those infected numbers it's just had downloaded. And it can give you notification because all the matching happens on the phone if you saw somebody. 
So the central server has no data that is useful to analyze. We have a particular separate way to get the data that epidemiologists need in a truly anonymous way to them, because they only need aggregate data about the world. Um, uh, but that's the way this works. Whereas, let's, let me just explain the centralized system quickly. In the centralized system, firstly, you're not giving out random numbers. Uh, what you're giving out a number that has been given to you to give out by the government, like an identifier. Now, to people around you, it still looks like a random number. But actually, at any point, if a central body sees that number, they can immediately see, ah, oh, that was the same person who was by this sensor and this sensor and this sensor and uploaded by this person and this person and this person. So they quickly build a profile of, um, of who you are if they want to. Uh, and so this can be, uh, can be turned quickly. It's going to be a foundation for uh, uh, further surveillance. The second part of this approach is that you, unlike in, our, in the decentralized system, you, firstly, you never upload anything that can be used to identify you. But secondly, you never, ever upload any data at all about what you have seen. Those always stay on your device. There's no condition in which it leaves. And in a centralized system, you have to upload that data. You have to say, okay, I have seen these people, these identifiers. I will tell the health authority that I have seen these numbers. And the health authority knows who you are. And it effectively can match and make a social network of what the world looks like, who's seen who. And that is incredibly rich and unnecessary data. Uh, epidemiologists tell us that it is not useful for them to analyze this data. Some people want to say that, oh, actually, but you know, this is data we need. There is no study indicating this data is useful for epidemiologists. We have epidemiologists in our team saying, we're happy to read and comment on any studies that say this is useful, but we haven't seen any yet. Marcel, Marcel Salafé from EPFL is a digital mm. epidemiologist and is very, uh, uh, you know, usually a big fan of data, but in this case, uh, knows that what you need is big adoption of these apps across a country. You don't need uh, incredibly fine-grained, unnecessary surveillance data on a handful of people. That's not the task we're trying to achieve here. Mm -hmm. And so really we're speaking about, I suppose, um, an apparatus of surveillance um, that has provoked this wider debate um, and necessarily informed a letter written at the beginning of the week uh, by around 300 researchers to governments uh, all over the world. Um, what can you tell us about the thinking behind that letter and maybe any responses that have come as a result of that? And um, could you provide a brief overview of the different positions of European governments on the decentralised and centralised issue? Certainly, yeah. Um, I'm just going to find out the latest numbers of that letter because we've actually opened it up for more academics to sign now. Initially, it was over 300, which we collected in in just over 24 hours, there was this much interest from academics uh, in making this very, very clear. Uh, we had to turn a lot of people down. It's now, uh, uh, it's now effectively about five shy of 500 signatories from universities around the world. So um, uh, this is not a niche view in, uh, in academia, far from it. I think part of the reason that this letter was uh, so easy to get global consensus on from the top privacy and security and epidemiological researchers in the world is that it effectively points to the strange irrationality of PET-PT and that approach, that centralized approach. So this is not necessary 
know, it's also arguably not legal because it's not in line with data protection by design. Um, there are less intrusive alternatives that do the same thing. Uh, this is a foundation, as you say, for a surveillance system. Um, and it creates the building blocks of a persistent environmental ID that can track you around. And it also creates the building blocks for actors, whether it's states uh, themselves or states that hack them, to understand the detailed social fabric of our society. Um, this, so this letter was um, was was really put uh, to make that clear. It, it has another role as well. Now, these researchers are usually far from the friends of Apple and Google. I personally have got several high-profile regulatory complaints uh, and and retainer solicitor in uh, cases against Google in the ad tech system. This is not a uh, my most of my research is around why what Google is doing is incredibly harmful for democracy and societies. Uh, this is not a, uh, uh, you know, this is not a captured process going on here. What we have instead is a, effectively Google and Apple just being another group of research institutes, uh, reover. What, well, what we have here is that Google and Apple have the two roles. One is, is saying, this is the most privacy protective solution, which is you know, already unusual to have a partnership between these two firms. But it's something that scientists agree with in the case, in that case. And secondly, Google and Apple do have an important gatekeeper role to make any of these technologies work in the first place, particularly Apple. So Apple um, has, uh, before this announcement at all, uh, you had the absurd situation in Singapore, for example, and other countries with these kind of apps, where anyone with an iPhone, in order to use this system, had to leave their phone unlocked with their screen on, uh, with the app in the foreground and in their pocket in order to use it. It wouldn't work otherwise. So this is obviously draining the battery. It also means anyone who steals your phone gets an unlocked device and has all of access to your personal data, emails, and so on. Corporate phones won't allow it. Individuals, I think, shouldn't allow it. It's uh, about, uh, from our, the data we've looked at, for every two years, 2% uh, of the population with smartphones have them stolen. So this is not a tiny uh, number. I think in the UK, it was per year about 400,000 in 2016. Um, you know, this is a, a big number of people. So this is a problem. This applied to all apps beforehand. And governments were pressuring Apple to try and solve this situation, to say, look, you know, this is a particular situation. Uh, we know Bluetooth is usually used for commercial tracking and you block it as a result to be used in this way. Uh, the phone isn't technically capable of running that kind of code um, from apps in the App Store. Um, but we need you to make an exception. That's what governments have been were saying to, to Apple and so on and, and to Google, the later Android devices. And uh, what Apple and Google said is they said, well, we've, we've and I, I paraphrase here because this is the interpretation of their documents, which are very technical. So I'm not giving any view because I don't know of Apple and Google, but it's my understanding of what this, these, they're, they're saying by these, these jumping these technical documents when you read them in detail. They're saying, well, we get all these requests. We need to respond to all these countries in the world making these requests. But we have to respond in a way that respects fundamental rights because we know that if we respond and say, well, France, you can actually have unlimited access to data 
uh, we will be pressured heavily to give that access to Hungary as well. And we'll be pressured heavily to give that access to, to uh, corporations like Palantir in America who would be selling this kind of system to a US audience um, if, they, if they let that happen. So they said instead, we see the scientific consensus around this structured model, and we'll do two things. Firstly, we will open up our Bluetooth capability on the phone so that open source code like DP3T can run perfectly well in the background on the device. It can do its thing. Health authorities can use this open source code and can, uh, in, can put it into their national apps and can, uh, uh, can have them running on their phones. But we will not go so far as to create the technical capability that can be misused to allow phones to upload the data of everyone they have seen, which is unnecessary for a decentralized application. And because they say we will technically not give the function to the phone to do that, because that is the function that can be used and abused in many other ways, covertly inside these applications, um, and, and can be the foundation really of a, of a surveillance state. There is no reason to give that function because it is not required for contact tracing. So why would we why would we provide it? That's what they said as the first part. The second part they said is effectively that some countries will not be able to have the cryptographers or the implementation teams to securely make a national application. They might be quite small countries. Um, they they uh, might be countries where they're prone to corporate capture and it all goes a bit terribly wrong with application. So we will work towards, or they will work towards. Um, so. They will work towards uh, uh, essentially providing the building blocks for um, for these systems, so that national applications can put these building blocks together and make a whole system function. So the building blocks look very much like our open source code DP3T, uh, insofar as they create no centralized database, they provide no data to Apple and Google. Uh, countries can run their own servers, even for this non-sensitive data that just is in the pipe is used to transfer to get the whole system to work. Um, uh, and and in this, uh, with this approach, uh, uh, that's the other side of the coin they developed. And that one's been criticized because people have said, well, what you're doing there is introducing a big global standard by the back door. Um, and I sympathize with that approach. I think we see in this Apple and Google's network power. But we, in this case, we see them using their network power for in in the same way that effectively these 500 scientists now say is the correct way to implement this system, is the most privacy-preserving way to do it. Um, we should take this opportunity to reflect on how this network power has become visible and say, we now see what these companies can do if they want to very quickly. Um, we should think about how we best control that. But this is not an exercise of this network power in a nefarious way. Doesn't mean we shouldn't keep checks on how this develops and how similar initiatives develop. But this is not the time to suddenly start discovering that Apple and Google are a duopoly when governments are literally going to them and saying, please use your duopoly to allow us to make our apps work. And universities are saying, we have apps that work. We are your public institutions. Why are you collecting data that make, will make people not trust you? Switzerland yesterday announced they are adopting DB3T. This morning, uh, Austria has announced they are adopting DP3T. Um, uh, we have been talking with several other countries. I don't want to, to prejudice them, but there are other countries that we think are imminent announcing this. We just don't, I just don't want to prejudice their announcements. Uh, it looks quite like, uh, 
France and Germany will be geographically surrounded by uh, countries that have sensibly chosen a decentralized option. And uh, this may, uh, you know, I think, create some pressure from both the privacy side and the Schengen side to choose uh, in favor of the science and not in favor of industry. So a lot of critical words there from Michael Veal um, on the PET-PT project. Uh, much of what he said has been um, repeated by other members of the new decentralized grouping that has emerged over the past two weeks, um, including Carmela Troncoso, who uh, spoke at a green um, event hosted by the group in the European Parliament. Um, she is an assistant professor at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, who had originally been part of the PET-PT project before recently pulling out. And she said earlier this week at this event held by the Greens that it became evident full transparency was simply not possible within the PET-PT consortium. Of course, after all this uh, criticism levelled at PET-PT, I followed up um, with their PR agency, um, uh, the Herring Schrupener Consulting Firm. Uh, I was informed generally that bad communication had been the result of the fallout within the consortium. And then I was forwarded on a statement that said the following. There must be enough flexibility to tailor the technology to the respective requirements of individual countries while maintaining its interoperability, the statement read. We believe that this flexibility also applies to contact tracing in the event of a positive coronavirus test. For this case, there are two approaches, a centralised low data approach and a decentralised approach. PET-PT is open to both and will thus offer both models in the future. So an interesting statement there um, that shines a light on the fact that, or the alleged fact from PET-PT, that they are actually open to using both protocols, um, which could be an interesting development for the future. Moreover, looking at things from a Brussels perspective, earlier this week, uh, the European Parliament's largest group, the EPP, said in a statement that the PET-PT project provides a good example of how an EU COVID-19 mobile app should or could function. Uh, this, of course, drew criticism from other parties, including uh, the Renew Group, who responded quite strongly to these uh, claims. And you can read more about that on the Euractive website. In terms of contact tracing apps in general, the European Data Protection Board said this week that the principle of data minimization outlined in the EU's GDPR would favor a decentralized model of data storage, even though the EDPB said that centralized architectures would also be permissible from a legal standpoint. So in the guidelines published by the EDPB this week on contract tracing and uh, the use of location data in general, they didn't actually take an explicit side in the decentralized, centralized um, application debate, but they did say that this principle of data minimization um, in the GDPR would be preferable towards a decentralized model of data storage. And speaking at a Brussels event on Wednesday evening, or rather, should I say, an online event held by the Bruegel think tank based in Brussels, 
The European Data Protection Board's Anna Bukta highlighted her general concerns for the future of such coronavirus tracing apps on the continent. This is what she had to say. I think the preferred EU approach currently is uh, one where technology is only one element of an overall um, exit strategy or, let's say, uh, approach by governments and, and health authorities to pandemics. It's not a, a standalone single, single bullet uh, solution, but it also means that uh, probably um, from one member state to another, we might see slightly different mixes of uh, or combinations of uh, data sharing, app, contact tracing, technology input combined with uh, social distancing still in place and, um, um, and testing. Um, and so far, uh, within the EDPB in particular, um, most attention went to indeed the use of, uh, let's say, um, uh, uh, use of low energy Bluetooth for, for possible proximity tracing. That was the main, the main focus in, in this context, and we have not really assessed um, any other solutions uh, such as uh, enforcing quarantine measures uh, through technology or or similar and in terms of safeguards that would need be needed in my uh, view in any event um, we would like to stress the need for empowerment of the individuals instead of control and repression which means voluntary adoption of many of those measures at the same time, and now it becomes a little bit technical, this does not necessarily mean that consent is the most appropriate legal basis under the GDPR. I, I can go into this a little bit later if there is interest, but voluntary approach and individual control is very important. Uh, transparency, uh, temporary measure, temporary character of, of any extraordinary tracing measures. So whatever solutions are considered necessary and proportionate under the current circumstances should not necessarily stay with us after the current crisis is, um, is over and strict purpose limitations. So uh, no subsequent uh, repurposing of the data for commercial or law enforcement needs. And also, of course, uh, we've had some comments on this issue generally from the highest echelons of the European Commission. Last week I spoke to Executive Vice President for Digital, Margrethe Vestager, who said to me generally that um, there shouldn't have to be a choice between uh, combating the virus and protecting privacy. There should be a way in which these apps are able to function that takes both of these priorities into account. This is what Vestager had to say. I think it's very important here uh, to see that you don't have to choose. You don't have to choose between fighting the virus and protecting privacy. Mm. Uh, that you can, uh, you can do something that also makes very good sense uh, with privacy and at the same time get a digital tool uh, that would be very useful. Now, surveying the contact tracing app landscape in Europe a bit more broadly now. And in Italy, Ferrari's staff are set to be given an app, alerting them if they've been in close contact with any colleagues who have contracted COVID-19. 
The technology that Ferrari is set to be implementing was developed by Milanese organisation Bending Spoons, who, interestingly enough, have also been contracted by the Italian government to create national tracking software. The technology is reportedly based on PET-PT designs, so perhaps we can monitor that one as a potential case study for the effectiveness of the technology itself. Elsewhere, in the United Kingdom, the UK's NHS has begun testing a mobile application designed to trace the spread of COVID-19. And again, the designs here are also based on a centralised data storage protocol. Meanwhile, in Austria, we have a debate going on about the voluntary or mandatory nature of the use of con contact tracing applications. And while Austria's Corona tracing app is in its current form purely based on voluntary use, a senior conservative politician has suggested making it mandatory. This resulted in the Chancellor Sebastian Kurz confirming publicly that the app would stay voluntary. In Liechtenstein, the country will provide citizens with biometric bracelets to contain the coronavirus. And in Belgium, a new mobile application called ShopSafe is the next technology in line to help users amid the pandemic. The app checks the quantity of people shopping in nearby supermarkets using location data and the data provided by the Belgian telecoms companies. It then provides information on whether the shops are quiet or busy. Elsewhere in Brussels, the EU's internal market commissioner Thierry Breton on Wednesday had a chat with Apple chief executive Tim Cook to make sure that mobile apps to limit the spread of the coronavirus work on its iPhones and other devices amidst the company's spat with France over privacy safeguards. Bloomberg of course reports this week that France is asking Apple to remove a technical obstacle it says is delaying a government contact tracing application. Moving swiftly on to the world of data protection now and the Slovenian government has adopted a decision allowing for the exchange of personal data related to prescribed self-isolation, quarantine and mandatory treatment for COVID-19. Moving on to 5G now and on announcing the company's Q1 results this week, Ericsson CEO Borja Ekholm struck a disconcerting tone for the future of the block's 5G networks. While we have been successful improving our position in Europe, we are concerned that 5G investments in Europe are delayed, he said. And of course, what he had to say has quite a lot of truth in it, actually. Um, recently, Spain, Austria, Portugal and the Czech Republic have all delayed their 5G spectrum auctions. Poland is the most recent country to postpone their bid it was originally set for the 23rd of April and has now been pushed back indefinitely. Last month, Slovenia stopped the implementation of 5G in the country completely. Moving on, Huawei's new P40 handset comes pre-installed with the French operating system Quant. I was informed earlier this week by a high-level official at the company. You may recognise the name Quant. If you are based in Brussels, it's probably because the EU's digital chief, Margrethe Vestager, told a Brussels audience earlier this year 
that she prefers using the search engine to other ones available on the market. Moving on to the platforms now, and tech giants Facebook and Amazon led firms in lobbying spend in the first quarter of 2020, according to documents filed with the US federal government this week. CNBC reports, Instagram and harmful content. Researchers from the Counter-Extremism Project report this week that they have unearthed pro-ISIS and neo-Nazi accounts advocating for violence on the Instagram platform. Meanwhile, for Instagram themselves, they're focusing more on the coronavirus outbreak at the moment. Founders of the company Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger have teamed up to launch a new tracking platform. Swiftly on to another policy issue really now, and copyright in Germany. It was a year ago, recently, this week in fact, that EU copyright law was reformed under strong protest and with a narrow majority in the EU Parliament. Germany is still working on implementation, but civil society in the country is already preparing the fight to rebel against the directive in court. Your act is Philip Gruhl reports on the latest, and you can find more about that on the Euractiv website. The Digital Services Act now, and you may have seen that the European Parliament's Internal Market Committee Initiative Draft Report has been published. The rapporteur for the report, the socialist MEP Alex Aguia-Saliba, recommends maintaining the central elements of the e-commerce directive as well as establishing a central regulatory authority. Staying with the internal market, the Parliamentary Committee has also released a tentative timetable for debate and voting schedules on a range of reports, including on the Digital Services Act, as well as artificial intelligence and ethics files. And you can find a link to that schedule on the Euractiv website. Meanwhile, the Information Technology Industry Council have released their recommendations to the European Commission and the European Parliament for the upcoming Digital Services Act. A statement from the organisation stated that they support the goals of the Digital Services Act to increase legal certainty, clarify roles and define responsibilities for actors in the online context. Meanwhile, Poland's Panopticon Foundation are looking to weigh in on the upcoming DSA debate. They have published a study on Facebook and their position of influence when it comes to political advertising. Now we have a host of information for you from the world of media this week. And before we get started on the World Press Freedom Index, let's focus on Brussels here a bit more. And more EU action is needed to make sure EU help reaches the ailing media and culture sectors European Parliament Culture Committee members said earlier this week. Meanwhile, writing in Euractive, an open letter to EU leaders from more than 40 MEPs calls for immediate action to support Europe's news media sector. Moving on now to the World Press Freedom Index, and Bulgaria has the lowest standards of press freedom in Europe and is ranked 111th globally in terms of press freedom for a third consecutive year in the Reporters Without Borders annual edition of the World Press Freedom Index. Also, Poland ranks lowest in World Press Freedom Index 18-year history. 
the authorities' efforts to subjugate the judicial system as well as the growing tendency to penalise defamation justified Poland's spot in the ranking, according to the report. And also Serbia has dropped three places in the 2020 um, index, according to the new rankings, after the country ranked 90th in 2019, but now it has fallen to the 93rd spot among the 180 countries in this year's report. It has an overall score of 31.62, which, except for Montenegro, is the lowest ranking in the region. Elsewhere, the leading Roma TV, Dick TV, which caters to the largest ethnic minority in Hungary, was taken over by people close to the Fidesz party this week. From media to disinformation now, and this week the European External Action Service have identified 45 new cases of pro-Kremlin disinformation, 30 of which were related to the coronavirus. You can read more about that on the Euractive website. From disinformation over to cyber security now, and the UK government has released guidelines on how to behave safe online, recommending reviewing security and safety settings, checking facts and guarding against disinformation, being vigilant against fraud and scams, and managing the amount of time spent online. Meanwhile, going over to the Czech Republic and Prague, US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said on Saturday that he was concerned by malicious cyber attacks that have recently hit Czech hospitals battling the novel coronavirus. As the world battles the COVID-19 pandemic, malicious cyber activity that impairs the ability of hospitals and healthcare systems to deliver critical services could have deadly results, Pompeo said. In the research world now, an MEPs ahead of the European Council meeting on Thursday have urged EU leaders to ensure that the new research programme in the European Union is financed with a 120 billion euro outlay, as had been requested by the European Parliament. The lack of budget for Horizon Europe will inevitably lead to the cannibalisation of one of Europe's priorities. We will have to decide between fighting the coronavirus, ensuring economy growth, boosting digitalisation or reducing CO2 emissions, said the EPP MEP Christian Eller. Also, this week, the executive has attempted to make way in the research and development field by launching a data sharing service for scientists to publish their coronavirus studies in order to enable the rapid collection and sharing of available research data. And that's just about all we've got time for this week in our edition of Euractiv's Digital Brief podcast. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in and you'll hear from me again next week. <laughs>